0: This is the Insight is Capital podcast. Sandy Liang is President and Fixed Income Portfolio Manager at Purpose Investment Partners. The views expressed in this podcast are those of Sandy Liang. Hello and welcome to the Insight is Capital podcast. My name is Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of advisoranalyst.com, And today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Sandy Liang, President of Purpose Investment Partners and Portfolio Manager for the Purpose Strategic High Yield Fund, Purpose Tactical Credit Fund, Purpose Energy Credit Fund, Purpose High Income Fund, and the Purpose Credit Opportunity Fund. Sandy has over 25 years of credit investment experience, including 17 years on Wall Street with Cobalt Capital Partners, and was a Senior Managing Director at Bear Stearns. He was also named to Institutional Investor Magazine's All-America Fixed Income Team for seven consecutive years. Sandy, it's great to talk to you. Thanks, Pierre. I think it would make sense if we start this conversation with a little bit about your background. It'll make a great segue into our conversation about the context of the market right now, where you see things heading, and your philosophy on
1: corporate credit and high yield. Uh, My background, I have been in the business since the early 1990s, and I I think I'm unique uh, in that I'm a fixed income portfolio manager, uh, focused primarily on high yield credit, uh, but also, you know, I have some go anywhere funds as well, Um, but I started my career as an equities analyst, and for the first two-thirds of my career, uh, at first I was at Nesbitt Thompson in Toronto. And then I was at uh, Midland Walwyn, Scotia Capital. Uh, I ended up at Bear Stearns in New York as an analyst covering uh, high-yield fixed income. Uh, and in New York, I did the telecom sector. Uh, I did cable and media. I did utilities for uh, uh, for a stretch as well. Um, so the first two-thirds of my career on the sell side, I spent researching different companies and sectors and writing research reports and marketing ideas. So the companies I've actually or see the industries I've actually followed firsthand include building materials, uh mining, all the telecom, uh small caps, special situations. Um, so in my time I've met a lot of management teams and I've seen a lot of industry cycles Um, Subsequent to my sell-side experience, my first job on the buy side, uh, I ran a fixed income book with a multi-strategy fund in New York called Cobalt Capital that you mentioned. And in that role, um, I also covered sectors because... Uh, our book was very concentrated and in order to put on a position i mean we we really had to become an expert uh, in the companies that we were invested in so um, I guess in terms of my experience, you know the one thing that the one takeaway versus other portfolio managers is that i 'm very bottom up very research oriented very idea oriented and very uh, supply and demand within the industries I follow um, and I think that that 's really different compared with other fixed income managers that started in the trading room. Because I I think managing fixed income as a trader is very, very different than managing fixed income uh, as someone who has um, done the bottom-up research. Because when you do the bottom-up research, I mean, the most important thing in corporate credit is you're really investing to um, get your principal back plus coupon. So uh, to get your principal back plus coupon, you have to have a margin of error. And, and I, I think you have a lot more confidence in that margin of error when you've been an analyst and you understand the industry you're invested in and you understand the industry dynamics Um, and that gives you a lot more confidence in your positioning as opposed to being a trader where you're constantly questioning your thesis because things go up and things go down.
0: Yeah, so so basically two-thirds of your career was spent doing a lot of fundamental analysis, a lot of a lot of bottom-up research, getting to know the businesses versus versus a lot of fixed-income managers who are, who have spent a lot of time around the trading floor, as opposed to actually going out and talking to a lot of companies. And so you spent a lot of time, more like a bottom-up
1: equity manager for the bulk of your career as, a, as an analyst. Uh, a 100%. And, uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. High-yield debt research is it, it's very much fundamental research and. Um, uh, as an aside, it's funny, I was at my daughter's school, she's in grade 6, and uh, I've done this presentation a couple times because I have a few kids. And in my presentation, it's one of these, what your father does for a living. Um, I have a page that shows all the different industry facilities that I've visited in terms of the diverse group, um, you know, I've been to cell sites from cell phone companies and I've been to uh, satellite operator control rooms and I've been to factories that make bricks and shingles and I've been to oil refineries and um, gas fired electricity plants and, and um, you, when you do that you understand these industries and how they work in supply and demand in these industries and, and that's uh, I think a big part of our process here, uh, in terms of understanding what it is that we're invested in, whether it's debt or equity, at the end of the day, you're investing in a corporation. Whether it's for just to get the the principal plus coupon or to own it, um, it really should be you know a very similar process.
0: So you, yeah, so I mean, what I what I heard from what you said was basically that a lot of companies facilities that you visited what you saw there was that those businesses were were very capital intensive.
1: Um yeah, I mean understanding the asset value uh is definitely important. I mean not uh you know what what's funny is that in it's not necessarily the case that all good businesses have to be capital intensive. I mean good businesses to lend to, uh it really depends on um you know what industry you're looking at I mean for example, uh, I would say you know the cable t v business, which is actually not a great business right now, but as an example, because it's a recurring revenue business, um, people would look at that on the basis of cash flow and cash flow multiples for like businesses um, you know cell phone business is very uh, you know it's also recurring revenue, so it's not you know cell phone business is different also because you have the underlying asset value in Spectrum, um, and Spectrum licenses, which is intangible. But uh, I would say that, you know, just as a more general statement, if you see a variety of businesses, some are very capital intensive, some are not, um, but you really have to be cognizant of, A, how do you look at the underlying asset value in different kinds of businesses? Um, do you look at the replacement cost? Do you look at the cash flow multiple of comparable businesses? Or do you look at the breakup value? Um, and, you know, B, how is that business performing? How is the return on capital? Because at the end of the day, return on capital is what pays you back.
0: Right. So in the midst of your career, you were at Bear Stearns, and risk management is obviously a very substantial part of the work that you do. But having been on Wall Street at Bear Stearns at the time and surrounding the time that the uh, financial crisis was unfolding, how do you think that prepared you
1: for managing high yield, for managing corporate credit? You know, Pierre, to be very trite, uh, the one lesson that a lot of people learn about the credit crisis from the credit crisis is that you can't rely on um, anyone else to look at evaluate uh, the investments that you're looking at so um, it's funny that in the movie the big short there's a scene where the hedge fund manager Steve Eisman, I think that's his name um, is in the, the office of Moody's and he realizes that the Moody's uh, analysts on these mortgage-backed securities has actually no idea what she's evaluating. Um, I worked at Bear Stearns and, and I was a senior managing director and partner there and uh uh, for a long time, I felt confident because I looked at leverage companies for a living. I looked at companies that had a lot of debt, and I worked at this investment bank where I got stock every year. Um, and I hadn't really spent a lot of time looking at the Bear Stearns balance sheet because we were A rated by Moody's. And an A rating is a pretty high rating. I mean, today, if you're A rated, um, you, you're basically borrowing, you know, in the States, you're basically borrowing money at just over 3% over 10 years. so that's it seems to be a pretty good credit rating, but uh, right. you know, by the time I got around looking at the balance sheet on my own, because perhaps I didn't trust the rating, uh, the stock had already been in decline, and, and I was just very surprised at what I saw, because the reality is that uh, there was very little equity cushion in the Bear Stearns balance sheet, and on the asset side, it was very difficult to ascertain what it exactly was that Bear Stearns owns because, uh, or owned at the time, because... The debt uh, was comprised of structures as opposed to um, it wasn't well laid out in terms of you know what we do here is we lend to corporations so if I lend money to Air Canada it's very clear in my holdings list I own the Air Canada four and three-quarter percent bond and you say oh that's what that is and you look at Air Canada and you say okay there's equity and there's debt and they own the debt. Um, if you looked at Bear Stearns uh it, the Bear Stearns assets at the time, you saw a lot of mortgage structures that were basically numbered and had names uh you know based on the kids of some of the investment bankers and things like that. Um, and it was just very non transparent what that asset value was, especially when things got volatile. And um uh you know, take that back to today. I, I think that what we're doing here. At purpose investments in our credit funds is we're very very transparent so if you if you look at a fact sheet and you look at our top 15 holdings you will see companies that do things where every holding um, you could go and look up the website and see what business they're in and, and uh, you know how long they've been around and, and perhaps some profile of management whereas um, I, I think that even today in fixed income there's a lot of fixed income managers that invest in mortgage structures and invest in asset backs and I'm not telling you that that's a bad thing because obviously there's a lot of um, you know ways to make money in fixed income but the point is that uh, you know what we do it's very easy to ascertain how much risk we're taking and just going back to Bear Stearns, um, it wasn't clear how much risk Bear Stearns was taking, but it was very clear that on the asset, on the balance sheet, there wasn't a lot of equity cushion. Um, so that was an important lesson. And, and, uh, I know we spoke in the past, and, and at some point, um, you know, I, I probably got uncomfortable with my equity holding, but given that, as a partner, a lot of your stock was locked in, I mean, you know, uh, for, for the bulk of uh, uh, my time there, um, you know the the equity holdings. It was it was kind of too late, right? So would you say that having been through that event, it, it caused you to become more diligent? Yeah, I mean it definitely um, gives one respect for um, the market and and what Mister Market is saying in market cycles because. Uh You know, me and you are roughly the same age, and having worked in Canada and the States, it's not—it it hasn't just been the credit crisis, right? Um, right? You know, we we all remember the junior mining boom in in 1996, 1997. Um, remember when, if you owned a stock, you could wake up in the morning and go see a press release, and that discussed 15 drill holes, and all of a sudden your stock would be up fivefold. Um, <laughs> right. Remember those days? Oh yeah, uh, so, you know, but, you know what? But but Sandy, realistically, a lot of
0: people who are in the business today weren't around. They hadn't, you know, they haven't experienced any of that. They've only yes. read about it or heard about it from other yes. people. And and so so you know that's a that's a dimension that you know that's certainly worthy of consideration for for, for managing high yield. Absolutely. Okay, so so you left Bear Stearns and you wound up at Cobalt.
1: Yes. And at Cobalt you were you were overseeing a credit fund. Yes, I was overseeing the fixed income book at, at Cobalt. And then from Cobalt you subsequently came back to Toronto? Yes. Uh I came back um I actually moved back to Toronto when I worked at Bear Stearns and had doing, been doing a commute during the week, uh having residences in two places. Um and having done that for uh a few years at Bear and then at Cobalt for a few years, it just became too much, especially with family and so on. So we had made the decision that our kids were going to be Canadian and not American. And, and so at some point I just had to end that. And um so I spent three years at Cobalt and then um I came back to Toronto in 2011.
0: So now, when you came back to Toronto, you continued to work as a, uh, a credit fund manager. Yes. What are the tenets of your investment philosophy? What do, what do you hold dear in terms of managing these assets? Um,
1: I think that uh, in terms of how we run money, the most important tenets are, number one, um, think like a lender. Uh, and think like a lender, what that means is that Uh, you know, there's a lot of debt we could buy, but... When we're buying that, you know, when you think like a trader, you're thinking about what psychologically psychologically could drive things up a point or two. Uh, but when you think like a lender, you're thinking about the whole capital structure and what's the asset value protection. And we try to get two to one where we try to get to a place where the assets in the company or the breakup value or uh the comparable companies um some way to measure value is two to one. And it's not always going to be two to one. I mean, it really depends on the volatility of the industry. Um, it can be one and a half to one. It could be three to one. I mean, it, you know, some industries are much more cyclical than others. But the point is, you've got to think about your margin of error because at the end of the day, you're getting back your principal plus your coupon. Um, I think the second most important tenet um, after asset value is, is uh, to really be cognizant of the industries you're in in terms of secular supply and demand and where that industry is going. Um, what I mean by that is, is you know, high yield is really, it's non-investment grade corporate credit. So the companies in high yield um, often are in industries that are not investment grade anymore, maybe they were at one time investment grade, but are now uh, in high yield because they might be very cyclical or there might be some issues with supply and demand, Um, we stay away from secular decline. So if you look at a high yield ETF, they'll basically buy the bonds of all the companies that have issued the most debt or basically lend money to the companies that have borrowed the most money, which makes no sense whatsoever. Um, What we try to do is think about okay, if we look at some of the, you know, what's in our universe, we're going to rule out a third or a half, or we're going to rule out a lot of industries just because of what they do. Uh, And I'll give you a great example. Um, This month, there's a company called iHeartRadio, which used to be called Clear Channel Communications. And Clear Channel is basically the biggest radio station operator in the States. Uh, they have an outdoor advertising company, but the bulk of what they do is basically traditional radio. Um, we, uh, iHeart Radio or Clear Channel has been a fixture in the high yield market since I've been in this business. And um we do not lend any money to iHeartRadio Radio because we feel that traditional radio is in secular decline because of a number of reasons: because of satellite radio, um, because of podcasts, because of iPhones. They're having a tough time, and their top line. Uh, they just reported earnings in November, the third quarter. We don't even own these bonds, but their top line was down um, year over year. I think you know, kind of mid single digit, and they're actually about to file for bankruptcy, which isn't really surprising because it's a company with a lot of debt in a secular decline business. So um, we try to stay away from these mega-issuers that are in the ETFs that abort a lot of money because we don't lend money just because the companies abort a lot. So um, iHeartRadio is a great example of that. Um, Valiant Pharmaceuticals is another example, uh, a company with billions in debt. Uh, it's basically a pharmaceutical company without any real R&D activity. So they own a lot of drugs and, uh, um, you know, a lot of drug lines that are have a finite life um, in terms of the patents and so on. So, uh, you know, I guess getting back to your original question, fundamental tenets, number one, asset value protection, and number two, look at the industries you're investing in, uh, lending money to, look at supply and demand for that industry and make sure you stay away from secular decline.
0: When we've talked in the past, Sandy, you, you've, you've said that thinking like a lender is the exact opposite of what ETFs do. Yes. And I think that's that's a notable thing, too, and that's that ETFs lend money to companies that have borrowed the most money.
1: Yeah, I mean, it... it Actually, pure, it makes no sense. It's analogous to, to be very simplistic, if you have money to lend and you, and you take ten friends and you ask your ten friends, okay, I want to lend you guys some money, who's got the biggest mortgage payments in relation to their income, I'm going to lend you more money? Um, that's exactly what the ETFs do. Because they're taking a market of, of four thousand bonds and they're sampling this market, uh, because they can't buy all four thousand bonds, so they're sampling the market and they're buying roughly five hundred and you know, they're trying to mimic the return of the whole market by buying less than what's out there, and they'll end up just buying the bonds of the companies that are bored the most because those are, those are the bonds that trade the most, whereas, uh, you know, what we do is we try we, – we have screening processes – um, where there's databases we can get from underwriters, if, if you talk to a Credit Suisse or a JP Morgan, you can get Excel databases, uh, with bonds and characteristics of basically, you know, almost any high yield bond out there. Um, and we start with the screening process, and the point is that, uh, you know, our sweet spot is not the company that's borrowed 5, 10, 15 billion dollars. Our sweet spot is a comp that... We that we can easily understand uh, what business are in with a simple capital structure uh, and a management team with a stake in the business similar to how you look at a good equity. That's how we look at credit.
0: Sometimes when you're looking at ETFs, for example, you buy an S&P 500 equity ETF, and basically you're buying everything in the index, you know, irrespective of what's going on with it. And that may be a little bit easier to do in the equity market, but with debt, it's a completely different animal. It's a very
1: different animal. And I, I actually think that it's not it's not clear yet that uh, doing the same thing on the equity side is a different animal because we're now in a time where um, ETFs have been on the rise so much and I've seen numbers in terms of the proportion of S&P floats that's held by ETFs. And uh, it's, it's getting to, you know, last time I looked, I think it was mid to high teens and going up all the time. So when you have, um, you know, that much money chasing returns from the companies that have just... Just gone up in value, um it's not clear what the end game is, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in a reversal, yeah, uh, so you know, I guess the question is in the c t f passive. Life cycle. Are we in the you know Are we in the fourth or fifth inning, or are we in the seventh, eighth inning? It's it's not clear yet.
0: There certainly doesn't seem to be a lot of clarity on that. Um, does it make sense um, Does it make sense to try and time
1: the market for high yield and corporate debt, for credit? Um, you know that's an interesting question because that's one thing coming back to work in Canada that's really surprised me about um, investors' attitudes to the leveraged finance, high-yield debt market, non-investment grade credit in general, um, because it, it's a lending market. And as a lending market, as an investor, you're always making a coupon. Your, your accrued interest goes up every day. And um, when you think of the types of institutions that are in that business, there's uh, uh, there's companies called BDCs in the States, business development corporations. But at the end of the day, even banks uh, have corporate lending books that are pretty significant and it's not all investment grade. Um, as a lender, I mean, it doesn't really make sense to time the market because if you're not in it, then you're not making the coupon. And you don't see institutions that are involved in lending. You don't see them time the market. You don't see them get in and out. Um, but for some reason, investors uh in Canada... Uh, I felt have have you know have this mindset, and I'm not sure if it's because there's been portfolio managers in the past that have marketed their funds saying, "Well, we know how to get in and out of the market. Um, we'll just w- simply look at the spread." Um, what I'll say is that you know this this leverage finance market is a couple trillion. And it's big as big as the Canadian capital markets plus, and um, There's a lot of different companies you can lend money to. And right now, I have bonds on my book that mature in 2019, 2020. Uh, from um, uh, you know companies that are very creditworthy that I'm pretty sure I'm not going to lose a dollar principal I'm not sure why if I see market volatility I'm just going to sell these um, and try to buy them back I mean you know more than anything we're trying to string right. together uh, you know 50 good investments where we're, we feel pretty confident we're not going to lose a dollar principal and if we can do that in diverse places diverse industries that have different cycles um, then we should be getting our money back plus a coupon. So uh, for some reason, there's a real market timing mindset where a, a, you know, it's very well known that market timers in equities don't get rich, and market timers in equities statistically uh, have a tough time showing their value. Um, I'm not sure why then in, in a, an asset class that actually pays you a coupon every day that's a lot less volatile, you'd actually want to time that asset class.
0: You're making a case now with this environment that we're in right now. We've got the Fed under Jerome Powell now alluding to possibly more interest rate hikes than the market anticipated and and so so interest rates, there's obviously a reaction happening in the market to the prospect of interest rates rising. Now you're making a case, Sandy, that sometimes
1: the rate increase is a good thing. Can you explain that? Sure. Sometimes rate increases can be a good thing when you're lending money because if you don't have a lot of interest rate risk but you have more credit risk, and if rates are going up for the right reason, and I would say pretty clearly it's pretty clear that rates right now globally are going up for the right reason. They're going up because economic growth uh, for the first time in years is actually globally synchronized. There's no major area that's in recession. Uh, Europe actually had better growth last year than the U.S. and U.S. is actually doing fine. If interest rates are going up for the right reason, then company credit quality is not a concern. I mean, it's always a concern on an individual level, but in aggregate corporate credit quality is improving and so if you're in a situation where you're, you're exposed more to credit risk than interest rate risk, then it, it can actually be a good thing for your investments. And statistically, if you look at not including the period that we're in right now, but the previous 13 periods, you know, high yield, debt. So, you know, where there's more spread than investment grade, high yield always outperforms investment grade, which makes sense because if rates are going up, then that's bad when you have duration and you have interest rate risk, but it's good for corporate credit quality.
0: Right. And and investors are taking a great deal of duration risk
1: right now. Yeah, I would say that in, in general, um, you know, on a backwards looking basis, Duration has always been a good thing, and I think that uh, it might, it's tough to change mindsets. So um, yeah, after 35,
0: 35 years of falling rates,
1: yeah, yeah, you know, it, yeah, of course it's it's,
0: it's that's a very uh, big shift to turn around. I mean, just looking at a, let's say a 60/40 portfolio, there's a lot of exposure to to duration risk. Absolutely,
1: uh, and, and bank risk management departments. Um, you know, I think generically uh, they view uh, interest rate risk as a lot more desirable than credit risk, um, whereas, you know, we could be entering a completely – we're probably entering a completely different period.